Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless you're using Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of everybody i'm eric arnaud and this is the nerdalogs presents your stories podcast we've got one last archival dive into past festival shows for you today because hey guess what we've got another festival show tonight as we become a chicago podcast festival featured show 8 p.m at the beat kitchen you can buy tickets now just follow the links on our website and facebook page it's going to be a sweet one not only are we bringing some great performers but we're going to preview a brand new podcast the nerds have been working on that drops later this week. Heck yeah! Now this particular recording is the first festival show we ever did, back in summer 2013 at the inaugural Jangleheart Comedy Circus, a festival put together by the folks from the Upstairs Gallery, our first venue, at the Den Theater in Wicker Park. We recorded this set in a lobby while other shows were happening. That was the festival's podcast stage, which has a certain charm to it. Uh, and we got an incredible bevy of performers to ruminate on the theme first time, including our own Mary Beth Smith, podcasting friends of the nerds Tim Dunn and Mark Coulomb, and the one and only Aaron McGathy, who's since gone on to do shows like Harmontown. So that's cool. Uh, this is a real good show with some unfortunate background noise, but hey, nobody's perfect. Now remember, everybody, Beat Kitchen tonight, main stage, 8 p.m. We'll see you there. Without further ado, Eric or no? Hey, guys. Usually we have like a room of 30, uh, and we don't tonight, so I appreciate you all being an enthusiastic uh, six or seven. <laughs> That's great. Uh, at this point in the show, usually my buddy Dwight and I would play songs that fit the theme, but no music tonight. Uh, it would have just been Foreigner feels like the first time over and over and <laughs> over again. I'm going to pipe that into the podcast right here. Anyway, so the theme tonight is first times because this is the first time uh, Upstairs Gallery is doing a festival. It's the first time we've been at a festival. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. We're going to kick the night off with Nerdalogs member Mary Beth Smith. Uh, yeah. Who, 
Uh, as Chris mentioned, everyone here tonight hosts a podcast. Mary Best podcast is called MBSing. She sits down with someone to talk about what they love for like 45 minutes. I just did it. I talked about Bruce Springsteen. It, she's an excellent, excellent hostess. So Mary Beth, take it away. <clears throat> me too, me too, was the first line that I ever said on stage. If you missed it, that's okay. A lot of audience members at the time probably did too. I was five, and I was playing the Two of Hearts in the Community Playhouse of Lancaster County's production of Alice in Wonderland. The line was in response to another of the cards saying that he wanted to play croquet. If you missed the fact that my first line on stage was a play on words, as I was the Two of Hearts, so did I for many, many years. I had been four when I auditioned for the play at the beginning of the summer, and the director had had to tell me what to say and when to say it, because I, I couldn't really read yet. I feel fairly certain that the only reasons I auditioned were that my dad had been in the Community Playhouse's production of Oliver the spring before as Fagin, and my brother was auditioning for Alice in Wonderland, too. He's five years my elder and got cast as the Mad Hatter. I always have and always will owe his achievement of getting a much larger role on his age, and no one can convince me differently. <laughs> Nor could they for the next eight years, as he got larger roles every time we auditioned together. But I digress. I remember really liking his friends and spending time with them, because I felt like they appreciated me, appreciated me a bit more than the kids my age. A pattern that continued for most of our young lives. I never could have expected that my Alice in Wonderland experience would lead to being in a play almost every summer after that for the next 13 years. I missed Robin Hood to go on an Alaskan cruise with my grandparents the summer before 8th grade, and I missed one other production the summer before my senior year of high school to do scientific research at the University of South Carolina. But every other summer, I was there. Uh, some of my favorite roles included Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, Violet Beauregard in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a dwarf in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, for the podcast listeners, I was typecast. Uh, Baby Roo and Winnie the Pooh, and a lost boy in Peter Pan, with my dad playing Captain Hook. Uh, there was a lot of cross-casting. It's hard to get young boys enthused about glorified version of playing dress-up. Getting to spend time with my family was a great plus of the shows, but I really loved the acting and singing and general camaraderie of the theater. But the idea of lasts intrigues me as much, if not more, than the idea of firsts. My last production with the Community Playhouse was Alice in Wonderland. That's called a bookend, my friends. Uh, Alice is the Alpha and the Omega. I had to come home from my residential high school one weekend for a solo audition, as the general auditions were midweek, thus solidifying one of my father's life lessons to me. It's not what you know, it's who you know. In this case, I knew the director. It was the same director as it had been 13 years ago. She didn't have to tell me what to say and when to say at this time, and when the cast list was posted, I had risen in the ranks quite a bit. It took 13 years, but I w made my way from the Two of Hearts to the Queen of Hearts, and it was going to be really badass. <laughs> I was easily the oldest person in the cast, but it felt like an appropriate swan song. It was interesting to me to be the wise, cool one that all the kids looked up to. I, I literally don't know if I've ever felt wiser or cooler <laughs> in my entire life. My favorite cast member was a black guy named Juan Zay who played the White Rabbit. <laughs> eh? Eh? 
No offense to any of the other lamer kids, but Wanze was cool as shit. And he was 12 years old. Uh, we quickly entered each other's top eight on MySpace, which sounds more like a weird euphemism than anything else at this point in our society. Overall, it was a, a kind of strange experience. I, I was a high school graduate and probably too old to be participating, but I think the growing pains were necessary for me to really close that chapter in my life. The chapter that meant spending every summer tooling around backstage playing things like Egyptian rat screw and war between scenes. The chapter that meant somebody else doing my stage makeup for me, even though I was probably old enough to do it myself because I'm garbage at traditional girl things. And the chapter that meant toiling during the school year to get to the time when I got to see the people who really understood me, as opposed to the kids that I went to school with who saw me as that short girl who actually liked math. <laughs> Honestly, the fact that those summers easily contain my favorite memories of childhood should have been a neon arrow indicating to me that performing was something that I needed to keep doing for as long as I can stand it, or as long as people will let me, and then probably for longer after that. But it wasn't during a crisis during my senior year of college that I decided to move to Chicago to keep doing this. Maybe one day I'll play the queen again, but I'm mostly thrilled to still be that two of hearts with my hand thrust in the air yelling, me too, me too, at every performance opportunity this city yields. Thanks. All right. Chris, make a note, write a scene where she's a two of hearts. <laughs> On it. All right. Uh, coming up next, we have the host of Talking Games with Tim and Clayton, which is appropriate because last time he told the story, it was about having amorous feelings for a video game character. <laughs> I won't get into the specifics. Tim Dell, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh... Yeah, the last time, the last two times I've been on, I've done a monologue for the Nerdlogs, I've talked about falling in love with a nerd girl, and, uh, we'll just say it, masturbating to a video game. <laughs> so anyways, uh, today I thought I'd do a 180, we're talking about first times, I thought I'd talk about, in my own nerdy way, the one and only time I got drunk and ran away from the cops. So... Um, a little backstory. I was kind of straight edge in high school, which uh, surprises no one. Uh, <laughs> people are making straight edge <laughs> signs with their hands. Anyways, uh, there was a dare essay contest in my high school, and I got third place. I got to choose between a backpack and a kickball. I picked the kickball, and I think I regret that, looking back on it. But there was a contest, not really, I guess, I guess sort of a pact with our guidance counselor that if you abstain from alcohol or drugs all throughout high school, they would buy you a steak lunch at Timber Lodge Steakhouse. So, so I was one of the like 20 kids out of my massive class that did this. And, in, like, partway through the lunch, I realized this was a, a waste. Here's why. I thought when we'd get there, it'd be like a goddamn feast. We had a select menu we could order from for the reward steak lunch. So the summer after senior year, I kind of was like, I, I just want to get drunk and party. And I wound up at this party of uh, uh, what you'd call cool kids. And I wasn't one of those at the time. I'm not now. Come on. None of us are. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, you know, I was at, uh, Ryan Fritzy's house and he was like a bad kid from the other side of the tracks. And I was just drunk off, 
I, I think, honest to God, like white wine spritzer. And just like a full bottle of like white wine spritzer. And um, this beautiful girl, Johanna Eklund, in my class said, uh, do you want to uh, smoke weed with us? And Johanna's not only beautiful, nowadays she's a cancer researcher, which seems unfair. <laughs> Like, you shouldn't be able to be gorgeous and defeat cancer. <laughs> like, that's just, that's... But I said yes, because she was, she was very attractive. And so we went out there, and these uh, very pretty girls from my class were passing around marijuana, and this light shines across her face. And I'm like, oh, that's funny, someone's playing a prank. I turn around, and there's a cop just shining a light in all of their faces. And he says, can I have that, asking for the piece they were smoking from. And he immediately starts taking the girls' names and starts pounding on the door. And the guys inside have already locked the door and won't let the cop in. So I have no idea. I have no clue why I thought of this or why I had the bravery to do this. Because I I wouldn't have it nowadays. (laughs) But I said, excuse me, officer. I know there's a back door. Do you want me to check there? And this this cop must have been right out of, I don't know, cop classes or whatever, went, yes, could you please do that for me? As if I, he was deputizing me or something. I don't know. So I, I ran around the side of the house, and I knock on the door, and I'm like, none of these cops are looking at me at this point in time, and I just bolt. And I'm, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm like, uh, overweight high school team down at this point, so bolting is a relative term. Um, but I'm running through the streets of St. Anthony, Minnesota, and I stop, and this is before I became an atheist, I stop and I pray to God. <laughs> and I say, uh, God, if you just let me not get arrested tonight, I won't drink until I get to college. I wasn't saying ever. I just said until I get to college, which was three weeks from this point. <laughs> so I don't get caught. And the next day, I, I had sort of, this has sort of slipped my mind. My father was taking me on a trip to do 36 holes of golf. And I was absolutely hungover. If none of you have played 36 holes of golf, it should be used as torture for people. <laughs> no one should be out in the sun that long. And I was just hungover the entire time. And there came a point where, because we were with another father and a friend of mine, and he said, well, let's compete. And I'm terrible at golf. So there was some combination of being hungover and disappointing my father at golf that just led me to throw up on this golf course. (laughs) Which apparently is a huge deal, and I did not know. Um, And... We get back to the we get back to the place where we were staying, and my father was like, "Were you drinking last night?" And he was like, "Yes, Dad." <laughs> and telling them about this story tonight, I swear to God, I thought I had told them that I ran away from the cops, and I informed them tonight. And my father said, "But you were so you were such a good kid in high school." <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, don't run from the cops. <laughs> And never play 36 holes of golf. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Tim. So you told your dad tonight, like oh, this yeah, night. Oh, yeah, he had you... no idea. He had no idea I ran from the That's tremendous. Oh, my gosh. Love it. Uh, coming up next, we have Aaron McGathy, who hosts This Feels Terrible, which is a podcast where you talk to comedians about relationships. Uh, pretty sweet stuff. Miss mm-hmm. McGathy, please. Yeah. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love Chicago. Hey, Chicago! Uh, <laughs> Aaron is from LA podcast. I'm from L- yeah, I'm from LA and uh, last night I went to bed at three and I woke up at six because I was so excited to tackle the day, so I'm a little delirious, but having a great time. Um, I'm gonna talk about the first time that I uh, that I ever made another girl cry. Uh, when I was uh, I was a Navy kid, our, uh, my dad was a chaplain in the military and we moved around a lot. And from 7 to 10, we lived in, my ages, 7 to 10, not uh, AC. Um, we lived in Naples, Italy. And over the summers, we would drive around Naples, Italy, and our not Naples, Italy, around Europe in a VW van and camp. Uh, and uh, this particular summer, I was 8 years old, and I had... Um, I had told, I had hacked off my own hair, uh, because I wanted to be a boy. It was also the same time that Madonna was having her boy toy tour, and at the airport, I saw a hat that said boy on it and gems, and I was like, exactly! <laughs> and I, <laughs> I had no idea what it was, I like, I, I begged for it, and it was like one of the one, my parents never bought me anything, but they bought me this hat that said boy. <laughs> and we went on this, uh, we went on this trip around Europe, and, uh, this weekend we were going to Wales, and on the way there, uh, there was a there was a sheep herder. As there as there are in Wales, everywhere there are sheep everywhere, and we saw a sheep herder uh, herding sheep across the highway, and we stopped. And my pa- I had a uh, had one of those square cameras that looks like a sandwich that were around in the early 90s. And I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll take care of this. I'll take a, I'll capture this moment. Um, and the, uh, the sheep, I remember very distinctly the sheep herder looking at me from across the way and giving me a like, no, please, like, don't, don't, don't do this. And I was like, I, I, well, I have no idea why he's doing that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a picture anyway. I take a picture. The flash goes off. As the flash is going off a, uh, a truck, um, like a giant, like a, like a semi truck comes around the corner as his, the sheep, I, I, I'm stumbling over my words because really this is like one of my most traumatic memories. Um, it was a two lane highway with an island in the middle and his sheep were in the, in the island and he was, he was in charge of the sheep. Like there was no chance of them going either side unless there was an eight year old, um, asshole with a boy, uh, hat and a camera. So I took a picture of the sheep, scared the sheep, they ran across the freeway, and I can still remember one of the sheep just flying up into the air and falling onto the highway and hearing a Welsh man scream in horror, and me just also screaming, crying, horrible, and my parents just telling me to get in the car. And um, you know that feeling when you know that you've done something really wrong and you, you feel such terrible pain and you say to everyone around you, I'm, I'm so sorry, I should die, I should just die, and no one responds. <laughs> You're just kind of sitting in that. So, so I'm sitting in that for a couple of hours and we, we arrive at this campground. Uh, when we get to the campground, uh, me and my brother, as, as we normally did, like walked around the campground and kind of scoped it out and saw if there was like anything to, uh, 
destroy, I guess. Um, and we met these two Welsh girls who were my age and immediately wanted to play with me, which was not a thing that I had experienced and was really into it. I'm pretty sure right after they said like, oh, we'd let, I'm, I'm going to try to do a Welsh accent just cause fuck it. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to come play with us? Yeah, a creepy gypsy uh, leprechaun. Um, so these two sisters asked me to come play. I, I go and I play with them. We play very distinctly. Remember playing frisbee and playing ball, and we spent the entire weekend together. Me and these two girls. I didn't let my brother play with us, who is my best friend, my only supporter. Like who never like wouldn't let him join us because like you know the girl where the girls are doing stuff. So please, please hang back. Um, and, uh, spent the whole weekend with them. When we would go to bed, we all slept in this VW van and I would talk about how amazing these two girls were to my parents and be like, you know, they, they, they actively want to hang out with me. Um, so then the last day of the trip, um, I went up to my new, uh, to my, my new best friends and, and said, Hey, um, I'm, we're actually, we're rolling out of here. And, uh, it has been, it has been amazing. I've had a really wonderful time. And they were more nervous than usual, and they kind of like walked away for a second and talked to each other. And and then one of them walked up to me in, in a very like ceremonious way and said, "Um, Aaron, uh, will you will you be my boyfriend?" <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was a weird moment for me because I kind of was getting what I wanted from life, which was that everyone thought I was a boy, but I was still like, oh, I really, we have been uh, hanging out under false pretenses. Um, I, I immediately said, oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a girl. I'm a girl. And she screamed in my face uh, like I had just said, oh, I, oh, I murdered your parents. Uh, screamed in my face, started crying, ran to her sister, told her the news. They both started crying and uh, ran back to their, to their uh, tent. And I, uh, and I walked back and again to my parents, another moment of, so um, here's the deal. And my parents were very against me being a boy all the time, did not comfort me, and just let me sit in it. That's all. Thank you. Uh, Aaron has a show uh, right after this recording that I'm going to go to, and you guys should go as well. Uh, Coming up next, the host of the Department of Promethean Science, uh, Joran Gargello. Uh, Thanks, man. Uh, Thanks, Upstairs. Thanks, Jangleheart. Particularly, thank you, the Nerdalogs. My sole credentials for being on this podcast (laughs) are that I host the podcast that's coming up in the next hour, so it's a particular (laughs) kindness to be included. Um, So when I was thinking about uh, first times, um, you know, I was trying to sort of think of what I might talk about, and uh, actually being in the space on Thursday kind of confirmed it for me. Uh, As I walked up those stairs and walked into the lobby here, at the Den Theater, it was like this moment where just kind of being alive in this space felt like magic. And I was kind of like, all right, okay, uh, there's a reason for that. Um, and the reason is, uh, 
an author by the name of Daniel Pinkwater, uh, who is my favorite author of all time. And so uh, it made me think, uh, okay, I should talk about the very first time I picked up a Daniel Pinkwater book. Uh, and it was this one, The Snark Up Boys and the Avocado of Death. Um, not not this exact one. It was a different one. It was a paperback one. I was uh, an elementary school kid in Montella, Wisconsin, in the Montella, Wisconsin Public Library. And uh, I selected this book off the shelves, which was uh, a little bit of an atypical choice because up to that point it had been all superheroes and Howard Pyle's Knights of the Round Table. So kind of an atypical choice for me to grab a paperback that had sort of the focus like three pretty homely characters, uh, Walter Galt, the narrator, Winston Bongo, his best friend, and Bentley Harrison, Saunders Matthews III, or Rat, uh, clustered around a basketball-sized avocado with a bunch of diodes in it. But uh, despite my outstanding literary predilections, I chose it, and uh, we took it home. And it was the very first time that uh, I'd encountered anything written by Daniel Pinkwater. And it was great. Everything he's written is great. He's a phenomenal author. Um, he manages to conjure something uh, that's so real uh, that I believed it. His The way that he uses sights and sounds and smells and people and the texture of light uh, put this place in my head that I believed was real, at least in kind of an imaginary way. But the, the thing that was great is that he grew up here in Chicago. So the setting of the novel is a, a fictional town called Baconburg, which is a version of Chicago, essentially. And the uh, the way that he manages to kind of construct these scenes where uh, the, the trio of, of, of teens walk down a, a barren uh, road or alley and then all of a sudden are in a carnival of weird people exploding with life, um, it, it evoked such a real sense to me that uh, I, I keep having the pleasure of, of encountering that every so often here in Chicago, like coming to this, where, you know, the outside of the Den Theater is crummy. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's like, you know, abandoned stuff and, like, trash in the street. And, you know, I mean, it's, like, kind of kind of suboptimal. But then you walk up those stairs, and then you're in this beautiful lobby, and then we have three stages. And as you walk around, you're in somebody's weird, sprawling house, and there's, like, secret restrooms everywhere. So it's almost like, you know, somebody, uh, some oddball dreamer kind of, like, put together in their head, a space that they wished would exist, and then somehow it was conjured into reality, and we all tangibly get to be here. And that, to me, is uh, is is what Pinkwater has done for me. It's like I get in these moments where I can feel reality start to curve away from what reality normally is, and then a hole gets punched in space, and all of a sudden I get to sit inside a world that I believe but is inside someone else's imagination, you know? That the fact that I, I know this guy is writing makes me feel like there are doors to be opened or doors that can be opened for me that I can step through into uh, an imaginary world that is real for me. And if if anybody's seen me improvise or likes it, I feel like that's kind of what I what I do, you know? Everything every almost everything I do, I'm trying to uh Create, create an act of magic that temporarily transports me into a world that would come from Daniel Pinkwater's imagination. <laughs> so to actually be here is uh, kind of kind of awesome and really sort of relishing it. 
you know, and uh, I guess I need to write a check to the Montello Public Library <laughs> at some point, you know, to sort of thank him. But I, I think it's going to be a little while because, uh, at least for me, um, until this whole thing is done, you know, I'm not in your world. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Chicago. I'm in Bakenburg for a little bit longer. <laughs> Just a little bit longer. <laughs> Our possibly final speaker, definitely our next speaker, uh, the host, former host of Poor Choices Podcast, current host of An Hour with Your Ex. Uh, last night I helped him get rid of some crippling gambling debts, I hope. <laughs> Mr. Mark Coulomb. Uh, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, the doorbell rings, a box is open. My mom asks if I want to watch a movie. Next thing I remember... Uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker fighting each other in some gray room, which I now know to be the bowels of Cloud City. Yes, I swear to go- a God that I don't believe in that my first memory is watching Empire Strikes Back <laughs> on VHS. It is, a, without a shadow of a doubt, my first shot in the fake movie of my life. It is my origin story. Some dudes get bit by spiders. Some dudes are super sad billionaires that run around putting children in danger. I was shaped and formed and turned into this utter failure, failure of an adult by watching Empire Strikes Back. It makes perfect sense. Empire is my guide to life. It taught me how the world works in a way that nothing else has even come close to doing. First of all, what makes Empire so goddamn awesome? It's the dark, bleak middle chapter, book-ended by basically children's films. Sorry, let's be honest, kids' movies. And, and what, it, what is life but essentially one long, dark middle chapter between the wonder of childhood and the pleasant dream of senality? I mean, the way things are going, if I can make it out of my 30s without losing both my hands, I'll be shocked. <laughs> In Star Wars, the whole movie's just one long, hey, let's go on an adventure and party with that giant dog that flies a spaceship. Whereas Empire is, hey, we're constantly on the run, you can't trust your friends, your dad's the devil. Which film is a more accurate representation of my life? I'm on the run in no particular order from anxiety, my parents' voicemails, my creditors, and as far as friends, ha, you know, I know some awesome people and I love you all, but if Lorne Michaels showed up, handed you a gun and said, put a bullet in him and you get on TV... I know exactly what would happen. And though my dad is awesome, the case could be made that my mom is in league with some sort of dark force. Luke is instructed by an ancient Jedi master, Yoda. Yoda, of course, looks like Kermit the Frog if he was dying of cancer. <laughs> and like Luke, I too learned a lot from Master Yoda. Do or do not. Is a, and, and really what has become a personal mantra of mine, size matters not. I learned how to romance the opposite sex from the Tracy and Hepburn of space, Han and Leia. And so, as you can imagine, I've spent a lot of my dating life avoiding saying I love you and being emotionally frozen. <laughs> so I ask any current and former girlfriends not to blame me for all my emotional shortcomings. Please send all mail to Mr. Lawrence Kasdan of Hollywood, California. Oh, and the ending? The ending? Han's frozen. C-3PO's broken. Leia watches the man she loves essentially die. Luke finds out his dad is a demon space Nazi who then cleaves off his hand. What the fuck? <laughs> These were kids' movies at some point. And for me, absolutely, it taught me what to expect the worst, which is, as a Star Wars fan, it's pretty, a pretty good ethos to have. Hey, they're re-releasing all the movies to theater. Oh, my God, that looks amazing. Yeah, but everything looks fake as shit, and Greedo shoots first. <laughs> oh, hey, they're making new Star Wars movies. Gungans. I mean, if you think the, the writer of Regarding Henry in the movie that had Han Solo play a retard is going to make a good Star Wars movie, 
I have four seasons of Felicity that'll show you different. <laughs> My version of hell is being tied to a chair as all the money I've spent on Star Wars drowns me over and over again. <laughs> Fucking Star Wars. In conclusion, even though when you step back, most of Empire is a total and complete bummer, it's amazing. No matter how awful everything else connected to Star Wars has become, Empire is perfect. So please draw your own conclusions from that on how I may actually feel about my own life. My fingers are physically unable to type letters required to make that sentiment. No matter what George Lucas has done to Star Wars and the horrors that await J.J. Abrams' eventual Star Wars films, I'll always have Empire. Thank you. Weirdly, Empire is the, the movie that sticks the most with me, too. I, uh, I saw the Star Wars trilogy when I was a little, little kid, and the only thing I remember from, like, three is the Hoth battle. I don't know why that is. <laughs> podcast has been produced in association with the nerdalogs to find out more about the nerdalogs and their shows visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs thanks for listening